Hello, and welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, those who keep heritage alive at the community level. I'm Dale Jarvis, and today's guest on Living Heritage is Kevin O'Coin. Kevin O'Coin was born and raised on a small mixed farm in the Codroy Valley and was introduced to the 4-H program as a teenager, which led Kevin to an interest and training in the agricultural field. He attended the agricultural colleges in Nova Scotia, uh, Quebec, and Ontario, and worked for some 35 years in the agricultural industry, becoming involved in farm and agricultural history in the mid-1980s. And we're going to be talking today about the Agricultural History Society and the work that they are doing to preserve those traditions. Kevin, good morning and welcome. Good morning. Thank you for coming on the show. Um, so let's maybe just talk a little bit about the Codroy Valley. For, pe- for people who don't know where the Codroy Valley is, where, where is that? Well, we're in western Newfoundland, very close to the Port of Basque region, an area that has been forever considered to be a strong farming community. Mm. Um, many people came from uh, Cape Breton region to settle in the 1800s, so we have a heavy uh, mix of Scottish and French ancestry including my own family. While I'm on a coin, I'm, I'm half Scottish, MacIsaac. MacIsaacs, very yeah. Typi- you know, you know, that's very typical. Yeah. And the Mac- so the MacIsaacs were originally from Cape Breton, moved up? Uh, I think the MacIsaac clan came directly from Scotland, oh, really? I think, to yeah. parts of, uh, of Newfoundland, including the West Coast. But there's a mix there that we're never quite clear on in terms of the Scottish and French uh, backgrounds in that respect. Yeah. So now you grew up on a mixed farm. So what does that what does that entail? Well, very traditional. We're talking in the, the uh, 1940s and 50s and even into the 60s, a very common farm across uh, Newfoundland and I suspect much of Canada. Uh, you know, you had cattle and a sheep and you, and you grew vegetables and uh, you had some hens, a very, very mixed um, type of farming, very common. You had to have 50 sheep and half a dozen cattle. The other reality is, Dale, um, the... Uh, uh, many families had uh, were large, like ten children. I, I'm, I'm one of ten mm-hmm. originally, so you better farm quite a lot to feed them first. <laughs> so, what what would your what would your chores be like as a as a child growing up? Oh on the dear, farm? oh dear! A quick breakfast and get out and milk the cows before you go to school. Yeah. But, I mean, uh, there was chores every day in one way or another. I mean, everybody used uh, wood stoves, so you had to have your wood supply you know, throughout the year ready and available. You had to take care of your animals. You had to harvest your hay. You had to plant your crops and, ma- and manage them. So uh, I think 12 months of the year, in some form, you had activity to do. Yeah. And so you became involved with the 4-H program as a young person. So what, what are the four H's in, in 4-H? Head, heart, health. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Yeah. But uh, you know, the 4 H program is an interesting program. It came to us out of Canada in, in the 1960s, and uh, the Department of Education were the primary uh, promoters of the program, uh, uh, pr- principally as a rural program for young people uh, with an agricultural base. So they went throughout the rural parts of the province and came to the Codroy Valley in the early 1960s promoting this program. Well, more like the 50s, really. And uh, from that, uh, the interest grew rather quickly in the way of gardening and other other types of activity, agriculturally related. And that got my attention. And, uh, in fact, I was encouraged by the leaders, you should look at going to agricultural colleges in Nova Nova Scotia, something which I had no clue about until that time. So as a teenager in grade 10 and grade 11, hearing this kind of discussion, that's that was not unusual, and you know, I had to t- take your time and give some thought to all of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, eventually, I went off to Toronto, Nova Scotia for two years, and um, 
At that time, Nova Scotia Agricultural College only had a two-year program. It was integrated with McGill uh, on their McDonald campus in uh, St. Anne de Belleville. So um, uh, Atlantic people, or up, as he said, in Ontario, the Swampies, um, they all went up to uh, McDonald College for the final two years of the degree program, which was, which was what I did. I graduated in 1964 so from 4-H to um, education and into agriculture. Yeah. So you, so you really have had a life uh, in, in agriculture. You're, 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 you've born into it. Born into it. And and still doing still it. Still doing it. Yeah, that's great. Um, so at what point did you start to make the connection uh, between agriculture and and heritage? When did you start to th- realize that this had a, had a history and heritage of its own? Well, I, I, I think really by accident. I found a document. Uh, well, first of all, I was curious. I was always doing a bit of exploring and examining. I found a document within our own archives at the, our own provincial department of agriculture that showed that the first uh, departmental move from government was in the... Uh, 1880s, and it formed a particular uh, government agency. And this was at a time when I looked at that and said, oh, we could be celebrating 100 years of structured government support to agriculture. Mm -hmm. I sold that idea to the staff around me, and we got some funding, and we put together a major display at a pretty heavy cost, but we did it. And um, from that, we uh, developed a, a committee including Dr. Joe, uh, Joe Scheuer and other people, and uh, we kept on going from there. Yeah. So we're talking now 30-plus years of uh, engagement in some form uh, with agricultural history. But that was the key starting point, uh, celebrating 100 years of uh, structured government support to agriculture, yeah. i.e. a RAM bonus and, and limestone, whatever the programs might have been at that time. Right? Yeah. So was that the start then of the Agricultural History Society? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I think it was 1986, I think it was the actual year. Yeah. Around yeah. that time anyway. Um, and and so what sort of programs has the Agricultural History Society been involved with in, in the past? Well, the, the first one was really putting together a major uh, a display uh, that encompassed that 100 years of history as best as we could at that time define it and put it together. And in fact, we end up with... Uh, uh, I think it was 18 storyboards, which captured you know individual pieces of agricultural history, and that display became a centerpiece for quite a while at our provincial shows. We had already started establishing provincial shows at that time, so that display was a centerpiece for quite a few years to sharing with the public our history. Mm-hmm. And uh, you you have to look at the island of Newfoundland in particular, and think about fishery and well, where does farming fit in, and how do you sell it? It was a slow process of integrating some history of agriculture where you're dominated by the wood industry and the fishing industry. Yeah. So that was the beginning. Yeah. But it, but it really was an important part of settlers' life here. You yeah, know, the, absolutely. The, the, everyone had a subsistence farm, at least yeah. of some kind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. particularly along coastal Newfoundland and, and uh, then in richer uh, soil areas like uh, the Musgrave Town region, prior to central Newfoundland, prior to the Deer Lake uh, region, for example, and, of course, the Codre Valley. Mm-hmm. But uh, we also had, in a modern history, a government putting together legislation to support farming by way of, say, the Gould-Skilbride region, putting in a major developmental program with legislation protecting that land base, which is partly why it's still there. Yeah. We have dairy farms still functioning over in Kilbride-Gould's area, which may not have survived had they not had that put that in place. And that emerged from the 1970s. So that's kind of modern history and the application of legislation and, and programs to support a particular industry. 
One of the programs I wanted to have a chat with you about was the, the Century Farm program. Uh, can you explain how that program started? What, what is a Century Farm? Well, the Century Farm program uh, was born in parts of Canada. I'm not clear exactly where and when, but um, most provinces accepting us at the time when we discovered this had already established a means to celebrate farm families wherein uh, they had farmed continually for 100 years or more and within the same family. Um, and so when we saw this program, we, uh, we knew we had funding available to, to seek to develop that program and here in our province. And uh, thankfully, that support came, and we developed a profile and a program around Century Farms and pamphlets, started the promotion. By 2006, we were ready to launch uh, our own uh, Made in Newfoundland uh, Century Farm program. So how, how many century farms would we have in the province? Well, we, uh, uh, sadly, the loss of farm uh, land and farm families here in this uh, metro region in particular, mm-hmm. going back to the last 100, 150 years, we only have to look at uh, Hilda Chalk Murray's book about a, a rather odd name book, Cows Don't Know It's Sunday, yes. uh, in which he captured quite a bit of history of, of, of the farm families. Well, many, many of those are now lo- are, are lost. Yeah. Within that, we would have had many, uh, I think, uh, 100-year families. We have 18 farms registered and approved here in the province at this point, and there's, I'm sure, more to come. Is there a family that stands out in your memory that, that has a particularly long history here in the province? Oh, there are several. Um, uh, the Lester family, uh, particularly the Murrays in Portugal Cove, um, I think they started out about the 1820s or 1830s. But we have a very small farm in um, Chapels Cove, uh, Linda Lewis and family. We go back to 1790s, roughly. Wow, that's, that's they're still active. Quite a history, yeah. 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 So that's that's the oldest existing farm uh, uh, that we still have, and uh, very happy to see that's the case. Yeah, yeah. And th- now we t- we talk about these century farms, but these are obviously farms that have over time adapted and changed to to meet kind of technological advances, and we see that in agriculture. I think farmers. Are, are often looking for the mm. best way to, to be productive. And so we see introduction of new technology, technology changes. That is almost part of the history of agriculture. Very much so. But there, there are earlier changes that um, uh, made quite a difference across Canada and throughout North America. Uh, farmers started to specialize in the 70s and 80s. So we had large chicken farms and nothing else. And we had large turkey farms and we had large fruit farms and so on. So the specialization came first. Mm-hmm. Then later on, technology advancements to incorporate with that. Right. When we see a young farm family in uh, central Newfoundland and Wooddale growing watermelons under plastic, you know, we're in a different world we are today than we might have been 10 years ago. We wouldn't even have thought of that. That's yeah. happening. Yeah, that type of process. So that that, re- that reflects part of the changes. Uh, growing corn in Newfoundland was like you know pie in the sky a few years back. The farmers are doing it now. We probably have six or eight hundred acres of corn uh, in production because they're able to start it under plastic early in the year and have a good season. And they of course have varieties that allow them to, to do that more effectively. These are kind of changes that are happening through research, through um, observing what's going on in other parts of the world and adapting. Mm-hmm. Um, 15, 20 years ago, people started talking about cranberry farming. A lot of eyebrows were raised. Get out of your, you know, that's not possible. But luckily, people stuck to the idea, found cultivars that they brought in from Europe. And now we got cranberry farming yeah. around the province. 
Yeah. So this is a adaptation in many respects, you know, changing the, what you do. Who would have thought you'd be growing fruit for uh, winemaking in Newfoundland? It's an extension of agriculture, mm. right? We don't think when we have that glass of wine on the weekend, Dale. <laughs> now, we do see some technology, though, that kind of fades from the public view. You know, there are certain things that are are no longer with us. And, and one example that I know that you and I have talked about before are, are hay barracks, which is kind of a, a vanished piece of, <laughs> yeah. of our architectural yeah. history, our agricultural history. Um, and I know that you, as a as a young man, that you had a hay barrack in the Codroy Valley, and and I suspect that there's a lot of listeners who don't have a clue what a hay barrack is. Well, but, uh, again, we're t- we're going back to the time of mixed farming uh, and a process of survival. You had to be able to harvest the hay to, to take care of your sheep and cattle, which most farms had. Um, and where did you then store your finished product? It was dry hay. Um, many people had enough space in, the, in a barn loft, but if you didn't have the uh, luxury of a barn loft, you found a different way in which to store it, hence the hay barrack. Four large poles, one on each corner, and a, uh, a uh, kind of open fence on the base, and then uh, a roof system which could be jacked up physically. It took four strong backs which to do that, but that was the process. You had holes in the poles every foot or so, and gradually, as the hay was put in, you kept raising the roof. Yeah. And that, so the roof would slide up and down on these slide poles. Slide on the poles, yeah. and then it would be dropped down closely on the hay once everything was finished. Yeah. But it had to be dry hay. Otherwise, you might have a fire in there. Right. A, a high risk. Yeah. yeah. And, and they kind of vanished by the 70s, I, I would imagine. I, well, I know there was a, there was a photo that um, is in the folklore archive that a, a man named David Courtney took in, in Kilbride, and that was one of the last ones there. Yeah. I know there was one in, in uh, Cape Anguille that was there for a long time, but it's not something that farmers use today. It's well, of course, the gain technology change. You mentioned that word earlier, and that was a, a very key issue. Uh, you know, the, the, the mechanics of harvesting hay and putting it in bales. Hmm. Remember our discussion a couple of years ago over in Kilbride? Yes, yeah. With certain families, and we talked about the hay bales, and yes. then we talked about the donuts, you know, the uh, or the uh, marshmallow hay. The big bo- marshmallow hay, hay. right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the uh, the technology changes, uh, you know, it brought about that that impact and change, right? Yeah, yeah. You know? it, it is interesting though that you know even as technology changes. Um, Sometimes when we look back, the way of doing things in the past uh, was the best way of doing things. And and the other technology I'm thinking of now, of course, that we have had a conversation about is root cellars. You know, that uh, root cellars were a traditional way of of, um, preserving root root vegetables um, that that is experiencing a bit of a resurgence now. Uh, As we start to worry about things like food security, people are going back to some of these older technologies. Very much so. Um, before we leave the hay piece, I mean, the technology advancements there pretty well uh, ensure that the others, you know, the hay berries won't come back unless you want to be a small farm and be a demonstration farm to show where and how we did things in the past. But the, the easy mechanics and low labor of using specialized equipment to harvest your hay now is, is, is the reality. Um, the food security piece is a whole different um, I think concept and issue. People are very conscious of, uh, particularly in an island like us, of uh, growing more food locally. Mm-hmm. And if we do, if we have much, what do we do with it? Do we pickle it? Do we dry it? What do we do with it? So I think the food storage system follows that natural uh, development. Yeah. And root sellers still have a place in which to do that, to meet that need. 
the uh, the basic um, uh, elements of the root cellar are cool environment and reasonable moisture to keep your vegetables for six, seven, eight months. And these are these are very fundamental pieces. Yeah, which engineers have adapted to more sophisticated storage systems, i.e. The supply systems for uh, our supermarkets and whatnot, gigantic buildings controlled in a similar manner. The old root cellar was the first model, you might say. Yeah. And now, root cellars is one of these projects that, that you had done uh, some panel work on. You've done, done display panel on root cellars, and I know you had a fabulous model. Uh, someone had made a fabulous model of a root cellar. Yes. Yeah. Well, I think the root cellar was a, a, a somewhat a good luck project again for us to discover. And when we got into it and doing it in cooperation with the Heritage Foundation and yourself, uh, um, uh, that project touched the souls of so many people. It was just phenomenal. It's still alive in terms of interest. Mm-hmm. So that's one of those things that will never go away, I don't think, because yeah. it's so fundamental to our culture and to us. Um, along the way, also, as you uh, indicate, we, we had this inquiry coming from the museum in Ottawa, the Food and Agricultural Museum in Ottawa, uh, where they're putting together a major display, and they heard about the root cellar. All of a sudden, we're having this discussion about, well, what's a root cellar? What does it look like? Well, two years later, they have one built and in place as part of their museum in Ottawa, <laughs> which is pretty re- weird if you think of that process. They also picked up, I think, through your records, I think, uh, and through uh, the, um, the the Munn Library, uh, audio from Ross Travers and, and Mike Murray included in the display. So as you walk your way through the root cellar, you're getting commentary from these two people from Newfoundland, which if you're in Ottawa going through there, that, that's a bit off the wall. Yeah, it's amazing that the, the uh, Newfoundland root cellar has traveled that far. Yeah. I, had the, I had the pleasure <laughs> of going through it last October, and I just felt, Sheesh, what am I doing listening to Ross uh, Travers and Mike Murray up here in Ottawa? Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of your more recent projects has been around the history of agriculture in Labrador. Can you tell us a bit about that? Well, we this one has been on our agenda for ages. Uh, we knew from our own basic research that um, two key parties, uh, the Grenfell Missions and the Moravian Missions, had a major uh, impact in part in large gardens slash small agriculture, uh, and going back to the 1700s and 1800s. As uh, we did more research, we felt that the Moravian one was a key one to get at soon because of the cultural differences. We were talking about people coming from Europe, from Germany and other places, bringing a very different culture to a very rugged coasts in the Makovic and other areas of, co- of northern Labrador, uh, coastal Labrador. So we were able to get the funding and get the person hiring which to lead that project, uh, and a very successful project completed in 2014. And the um, the things we discover there are, are so, so intriguing. The Moravian people especially were so, so keen to uh, have a good quality gardens because for them it was their survival also. When you leave Europe and come over here and you only got X number of months to store your food away, you've got to have some security. We're back to the language of food security. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, circa 1780 or something, okay? <laughs> <laughs> they started the process. So the, the, they had gardens big enough to secure themselves for the winter. And we're not talking just small families. When the Moravian Mission set up, I mean, we're talking 15 and 20 people or more housed in, in their in their. Uh, in their system there. So they had to be very productive, and they were. But they also had to do things that were very different that we don't often think about. The coastal Labrador was so barren that there was not enough soil there to really start good gardens. So guess what? They filled up their boats with soil from Europe and brought it over. Yeah. You know, this is so, so different than what we think about. 
I mean, the early establishments of uh, coastal uh, Newfoundland and Labrador is so different than any other part of Canada that we, we've written about it historically. I'm not sure we sold the story well, and people understanding just how different it is. We're very unique in that respect. Uh, almost 100 years later, we got uh, Sir Wilfred Grenville coming in more towards the St. Anthony and southern coast of Labrador, and he recognized from a medical point of view the issues of health and therefore better food, better quality food, and better vitamins, and so on. So the gardening thing emerged from a health issue. The Moravians began from a survival issue. Mm-hmm. So rather different perspectives, but yet the end, end result was we're taking care of ourselves in a more secure manner. I was in, uh, well, almost 20 years ago now, well, 20 years ago, uh, in, in 1995, um, I was in uh, the community of Okak, which is halfway between uh, Nain, which is the northernmost community in Labrador, and um, Hebron, which is an abandoned Moravian settlement. And, and Okak had been, a, had been a Moravian settlement as well. And there was still, at that point, rhubarb mm. growing wild, yep. uh, which was one of these introduced species, introduced plants that the Moravians had brought over. Absolutely. And the, the Inuit people kind of adopted rhubarb as one of their traditional foods. And people in Nain were talking about, oh, yeah, we still go out to Okak to harvest, to yes. harvest rhubarb, which is... But it was probably also a health issue. It was your earliest nutritious product that you could possibly have in yeah. terms of your rhubarb. So I, I think they recognize it as a health issue. The Moravian people I discovered also um, uh, learned early in their, um, in their development and, and setting up missions. They trained people horticulturally. Mm. So for us to think about that, you know, 1700s, but thinking that way, the well, well beyond most people's approach to, uh, to gardening and farming and, and how to do that. For missionaries to take on the role of uh, training themselves horticulturally to, for survival, it's a whole different thinking process. And uh, that's quite remarkable, I think. So what lessons do you think we can learn from looking back at our agricultural history, what, moving forward? Well, uh, I think you have to be prepared to take care of your own needs and do the best you can to grow what you you need for yourself, if that's possible, where where that may be practical. It's not the real world in most parts of anywhere in Newfoundland or across Canada nowadays, of course, except people are trying very, very hard to uh, still promote, grow locally, buy locally, and uh, and, uh, support your industry locally, hence the farmer's markets. Community gardens are emerging all over the place right now, and that's a reflection of that same issue Yeah, all across the province. Yeah. So I'm very happy to say we just started one on Portugal Coast St. Phillips. Oh, very good. Yeah. 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 Uh, so what's next for the Agricultural History Society? What projects are you working on right now? Uh, we're kind of in a um, stepping back mode for a little while while we uh, kind of rest our oars and think about what may be next. There are some projects that we know we should do. Um, we are, to be rather frank, an aging network, so uh, we only have so much time in which to do these things. Yeah. But there are some projects waiting to be done, no question. Um, I won't comment on what that might be because that <laughs> might not be fair at this point. Yeah. But I have to say that uh, those of us who sit around the table and look at what we've accomplished in the way of Century Farm projects, root cellars, uh, the Labrador project, these have been quality, quality projects. And uh, they've been very successful, so we're very happy with that. Yeah. Now, each year, each summer, you uh, display some of this information at the uh, at one of the, the the agricultural fairs that happens uh, at, on Brookfield Road. Do you, yeah. do you, are you still doing that this year? Well, the, uh, the, this year in particular, we'll be at the uh, annual uh, Farmers Field Day at the Agricultural Canada Research Station, which is early uh, August. I think is August the 9th. I'm not sure if that's the correct date for a Saturday. 
Um, but it was the um, it's a traditional um, show that the research station people put on to promote uh, you know their in, their role in research and in, in the agricultural and farm industry, and we've been very thankful to be uh, permitted to be presenter almost every year for the past ten years or more. Mm. So we expect to be there in August, and it'll be the focus will be gardening, including the Moravian Grenfell piece in Labrador. Uh, how long has that research center been oh. been open? Oh, well, we're talking be, uh, more than 50 years. Yeah, so it has its yeah. own history yeah. in yeah. the province. Yeah, yeah. very much so, yeah. 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 And that's not a history we wish to write. That's up to them to write what I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it would be a big job. But yeah. they've been pretty instrumental. In, in, like you were talking about these new strains of corn uh, you know, yeah. that, that can grow here. That yeah. These are important things that will come out of that facility. Well, they, they recognize that in our province, they have to focus on what fits within with the farm industry. Many research stations are so dictated by national interest. Sometimes you lose sight of what's local. But here, thankfully, they've zoned in on areas that are very uh, close to Newfoundland's needs, the dairy industry and better forage production, the fruit industry, and adapting maybe more varieties in the the blueberry or cranberry section, this sort of thing, Mm -hmm. to promote those sectors, these two very strong sectors in which they fit. They refer to themselves as a cool climate research station. But with good reason. You just have to look outside and recognize the fog's still rolling in, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but so uh, they found a way to fit in. And, their prior, and what they also do is maintain a good connection to the farm industry. We're also seeing something new evolving, Dale, that may uh, uh, serve you well to uh, look at for discussion further on. Is uh, Grenfell College and Munn are coming much closer together and looking at where they fit within the farm industry. This is a very new phenomenon for Munn mm-hmm. to be doing that. Uh, a few years back, you would have hardly heard anything out of Mun that relates to the farm industry. But now we're into the second term of a president who comes from Saskatchewan and is an Aggie. We're seeing his influence. <laughs> it's good to have a friend in high Absolutely. places. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. It's a key piece. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And we don't hold it against him. He comes from Saskatchewan. We welcome him. <laughs> um, you know, we were talking when we started off here about how you started off as a, as a kid with for, the 4-H program. Um, how important is it to keep young people interested in agriculture? Well, uh, thankfully, our, uh, our industry people are going into the schools and promoting uh, growing things, hands-on uh, projects with kids, uh, giving them some understanding of how things grow. And that's a, that's a major uh, informational process and promotion. Uh, agriculture awareness is the right language here um, at the school level. And uh, it's, it's a continuing process that in the industry is supporting uh, all across Canada. And that means school visits, going in to help them start the simplest thing that may be possible, grow peas or beans or whatever and do a hands-on demo, but have them engaged in it. Some schools have developed gardens. Some schools have had even a greenhouse. That's a, that's a big decision for them to have, given the nature of their uh, school year. But they've done it because they, the interest is there. Yeah. So this summer, uh, do you have a plot in your in your community garden in Portugal Cove? I certainly do. So what are you growing? Uh, a mix of everything. I mean, my wife is in charge of it. Yes, <laughs> proper thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and are, so, are you growing vegetables? Is that? Uh, oh yes, we yeah. uh, we we have tended to do in the last few years. We stay with uh, the uh, the landscape side of things and uh, in the way of annuals and perennials. But uh, we've gradually gone back into a small bit of uh, gardening and beds, raised beds, and tends to be uh, your seasonal um, salad type. Uh, 
uh, food items. Uh, uh, we're not going to uh, look at turnips or, or potatoes. They, they require too much space for our, for our needs. So we, we try to focus on, on uh, short-season uh, salad vegetables. Yeah. And a few carrots and a few other things. Yeah. And what's the, what's the public response been in, in Portugal Cove? Um, it's a bit slow at this point, but we're happy to make a start. We started off with 18 beds, and we have, I think, about 10 in use. Um, the process is uh, get the thing started and do some show and tell and l- allow it to evolve. Great. Well, thank you, Kevin. Thanks for coming on the show. No, this is rather interesting. Thank you very much. I'm Dale Jarvis, and you've been listening to Living Heritage, a production of CHMR Radio. in collaboration with the Intangible Cultural Heritage Office of the Heritage Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador. You can find us online at ichblog.ca or on iTunes. Thanks for listening.